0: Hey, alive from AC Second fans, this is Chris Garrett's of Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simul- ca- simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, Could the Reformation Have Happened Without Martin Luther? Welcome back to the Pi at the Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garrett. Once again, I'm joined by Sam Albury, my Bethel University colleague, friend, frequent podcast, partner in crime, many other words we could give you. Do you want a longer job title? <laughs> I don't think stuff? podcasting's a crime, Chris. No, it's not. Okay. In this, our third season, we are marking the 500th anniversary. Of Martin Luther's 95 Theses by looking at the history and legacy of the Protestant Reformation. Now, we're not actually doing something on October 31st, but we're kind of straddling it. So, this is easing us into the holiday, and then That's next right. week we'll be, you know, if we've recovered this. This is our, our Reformation interviews. Eve party, right? It is a Reformation Eve party. As well, at least as close as we're going to we're gonna get. So, <laughs> which, which reformer would you go as if you could dress up for Halloween as a reformer? That's really tough because they all kind of look the same. They
1: all kind of look the same. I'm trying to think of like, is there a reformer who like would be decidedly different?
0: Well, I think the decision tree starts with beard or no beard because there's some really good reformer beards, but like Martin Luther, except for his you know disguise for a while, doesn't doesn't typically have a beard.
1: That's true. Yeah, but yeah, I might I might go tonsure then. (laughs) There you go, tonsure Luther. My (laughs) wife
0: did actually suggest I should show up next Tuesday with some kind of false tonsure of some sort because I told her I'm not going the full shave. I don't love this that much, but I don't know. It is Halloween. That's well, right. So It fits. <laughs> okay. Let us know which performer you're going as for Halloween. Uh, this is my cue to remind you, <laughs> if you couldn't tell already. We are not like real Reformation experts. We just kind of like to teach this stuff, think about it, talk about it, and uh, so maybe guide some of you through some things you might think about as this anniversary cues remembrance and study. So,
1: so I will say we, we talked last week about um, – the Reformation and its impact on culture and potential pop culture. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the hallways, there's a, there's an improv comedy troupe at Bethel, and they have a Reformation themed at least at least in terms of how they're titling this show. And it's so great that the title it's it's just a picture of the 95 Theses. You know, up on the church door, and it's the the show is just called "Nailed It,"
0: which is great. I loved it. (laughs) I heard from my sister-in-law; she does, um, among other things, children's ministry at her Lutheran church in Iowa. She had found online somewhere all sorts of Reformation Sunday or Reformation Day kids ideas, Ah. which uh, I'll try to find and put the link on the on the show page for you because I I think that could be kind of fun. Like, I also kind of want to do we do trunk or treat Mm in our church. And it's um, actually Reformation Sunday. And I kind of want to talk my wife into doing a kind of trunk that's Reformation themed and you know, have like gummy worms out. Because we did this in our department, yes. I don't know how many years ago now. Uh, it was probably six
1: or seven years but ago. We now. actually had
0: like people come around and trick or treat with Reformation themed little uh, little tidbits. Yeah, it's
1: actually it. not that hard once you start to do it. No. You, you, you can you come up with lots of Reformation. And some of the posters
0: <clears throat> are still up in our hallways. So. They are, indeed. Okay, well, let's move on to the topic for this week. So we talked about, uh, you know, we started with just how do we remember the Reformation? What does that look like? Last week, We talked about the Middle Ages, what's being reformed. This week, we're going to finally move into Luther himself. I actually want to start with a different kind of question, which is, could it have happened without Luther? And so I I just want to say, like, in some ways, this is an odd thing for historians to ask. This is an unverifiable, unfalsifiable kind of question. Which makes
1: it fun. Which is what
0: makes it fun. But I think it actually is a good way for historians to think. I had a grad school advisor who loved counterfactuals. Yeah, like you have to set rules. Like you only can change like one variable. You can't mm-hmm. come up with crazy combinations. But it's actually useful because historians can't conduct actual experiments. We can't rerun right. time, so we have to conduct thought experiments.
1: And I actually think I think the I think the Reformation is a great test case for this because there's a degree to which it kind of feels inevitable. Yep. and and it's really easy to play the game of. Luther was sort of right place, right time. So the question then becomes well, is it just, was he the right person or was he, was it just happenstance that he was the one that took hold?
0: So we hope you agree. We hope this is a good way, maybe a slightly creative way of getting at, I mean, in the end, why Luther is important or in some ways why he is just in the right place, the Mm -hmm. right time or, you know, the fuel was there, he's just the match. And we'll probably circle back to this at the end,
1: but even if we convince you that he was just right place, right time, Mm -hmm. you can't. Change the fact that he was the one, and and that shapes the direction it goes. And
0: so that's one thing we want to talk about. What difference does it make that it was Luther? But let's start by taking him out, and there are a couple ways you could play it. So here's the first version of the question, which is, could the Reformation have happened before Luther? So let's assume something has happened in, you know, late Middle Ages, broadly speaking, Such that by the time Luther is the same age, you know, the Reformation is already underway. It's already accomplished. He either feels no need to provoke what becomes what we think of as the Reformation, or he's kind of lost in the mix because a lot of Reformation is already taking place. So I I try to think through some scenarios where this could happen, and the easiest one to think through is that in 1414, a church council is called whose founding document actually says that it is dedicated to a general reformation of the church. So, I mean, the first thing I I might have even said the first week is that reformation is around for at least a century before Luther. So at least the idea that the church needs to go back to its form is being widely discussed by a lot of people right up until the time of Luther. And many of them don't become Protestants. And so you could spin out a scenario like that. Could it have happened... Where that council actually followed through on its stated mission and about a hundred years before Luther managed to change the church. And so like there maybe the best reason to think it is the church has done this before. The church encounters, you know, division, controversy, corruption, and it, it convenes and you know, if you want to believe the Holy Spirit guides it. And it at least reaches a degree of unity. It um, sets forward an agenda for um, sorry, for for reform. You know, we've seen this, you know, with kind of the classical historical councils of the church. In some ways, this happens with like the Lateran Council in the 13th century. You know, there's a reason they did this. Luther does this in 1520. You know, pretty far down the road towards division, Luther writes a letter appealing to the German princes of the Holy Roman Empire, and he the letter is to say, do an end run around the Pope and call a council, and that's how we're going to do this this Reformation. And throughout the 15th century, there is a kind of movement called conciliarism that suggests that what we need is to disempower the Bishop of Rome. And instead, you know, more periodically, regularly call councils, you know, every 10, every 20 years is a way of essentially a different kind of governance that reduces the possibility that that one office can become corrupt or, as it had been for 40 years, uh, the the site of a schism. And um, you've got important figures here, like there's a French philosopher named Jean Gerson who teaches at the University of Paris, who's a kind of early Christian humanist deeply ironic kind of figure, anticipates some of the reforms of later people that we'll talk about. Um, the most recent biography about him, it's about 10 or 12 years old, by Brian Patrick McGuire, is actually called Jean Gerson and the Last Medieval Reformation. And he is the key figure at this Council of Constance to say you know, that this is a moment to, um, um, to redress some of the problems we've been seeing for a century in the church. And so you could imagine that. So why... I don't know how much you've talked about the Council of Constantine. I mean, what else is happening around this time, Sam, that we talked about in, in class? Why why does it go awry, if I can put you on the spot?
1: Uh well I mean you're the, the, the council's dealing with things like the Great Schism. It's dealing with um with early reformers. Yep. Or well, yeah, I mean early reformers early to the Protestant Reformation, so um Jan Hus. John Huss, do We. What do we?
0: Yeah, we. I, we
1: can go either way on this one. I'm. A, I'm a John Hus guy. I, I like, think so. I like, I like John. Who sounds a little
0: pretentious. Yes. Right. Yes, it does.
1: Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's. It's interesting to think about if that was something that. That that could have worked. I think it really would have had to start with, as you're talking about, like a shift in the power structure. Because I. I don't. Knowing what I know about humanity and human beings, I don't see. Um, well, it's, it's actually very—it's interesting because what I was going to say is I don't see the Pope ever, like, voluntarily relinquishing power. Except I would say this. If any position was going to do that, if you got the right kind of pious person, yeah. they actually might. Yep. Now, what's interesting is would the structure around the Pope allow it? If you had – I mean, if for some reason a – if we were to able to pull, like, a spiritual descendant of St. Francis, mm-hmm. really like St. Francis and put him – on in the in you know in on the, th- the throne of the Pope yeah, is that yeah, a word okay yeah. um, like w- I could see somebody like that really saying we need to relinquish this power, but what's interesting is would the structure around that allow for that to happen?
0: Yeah, I think that's another way of spinning this counterpart I mean I get, a way of thinking about this is can you do reform from above? Because in some ways that seems like that's the most logical way to do it. They've got the power. You know, They, in many cases they're charismatic figures. We've seen this. You know, in some ways the first reformation to some scholars is what happens in the 12th century under Pope Gregory, which is, you know, Protestants don't like it because it centralizes the power of the papacy and of the church. But it also is an attempt to clean up. Some of what's been developing in the early phases of the Middle Ages, and you know that's thought of as a kind of Reformation, and so you've got a model for that.
1: Well, and what's interesting is is to make that work, you would have to almost be like the like the ancient Greeks, where you really do believe in that leader enough yeah. to say we're going to endow them with in, with total power, let them dismantle this, really strip the power away. With the hope that then they would also then relinquish power themselves. Okay. That's the part where the humanity thing is hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, like, in this scenario, you would have had to have this council come together, you know, unite around a compromised candidate who would turn out to be that kind of person. I mean, in some ways, like, is this what we're watching right now? We don't think of Pope Francis as leading a reformation, except, you know, in some senses, you know, he is pushing that church in a certain direction. He's doing it through. I mean, a kind of model of piety, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's where a lot of his power comes from. Yeah. I mean, and in some respects, running into pushback from his own bureaucracy, from factions within the church. You can imagine, like, late medieval, early modern versions of that. I mean, the other way to think about this, and I got this partly from our feature book this week, is by a Yale historian named Carlos Air, who's a Cuban historian. Um, he's written a lot of good books about the Reformation, um, including the Reformation of the Idols. But his current, like his 500th anniversary book is simply called Reformation's Plural. Uh, it's like early modern Europe, 1450 to 1650. And so what he's trying to do is to decenter 1517 and say, you know, first of all, Reformation was happening long before. And some of the figures we'll talk about, he talks about. But he also wants to really then say the Catholic Reformation is a true reformation mm-hmm. and in a sense like think about the council of trent that actually is a council that's undertaking a kind of reformation protestants just don't like it because its theological core is high medieval mm-hmm. right and and has a latin mass and is a celibate clergy and has indulgences but not indulgences for sale and so like you eventually do get that kind of reformation i guess a lot of it just has to do with what does reformation mean to you I mean, is your view that essentially this structure itself is so corrupt, the only real Reformation is one in which you start over, Mm -hmm. you branch off, and you get Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and and that kind of Reformation? Mm -hmm. Because that's not the Catholic Reformation, right? Right. And and so in that sense, but, like, would that ever have gone far enough that you never would have, I guess, had the need for a Luther kind of figure to emerge? Well, and it's
1: also interesting to think in, in that same light, like, I mean Luther's Luther doesn't begin with wanting to break away. So like like what would have been enough for him to feel like this church is moving in the right direction? Not that he would have said, "Now we've reached it," but where it would have been enough of a concession to say, "I believe in the I trust the process." That, yeah, that you know, yeah. like because clearly what he runs into is a process he doesn't trust. Yeah. But what uh, it'd be, I mean, it'd be interesting to know like like what would have been the minimum for him to be like. Let's keep going with this. Yeah,
0: I mean, a way to think about that is: at what point does Luther cease to be a Catholic reformer and become a Protestant? Mm-hmm. In some senses, it's it's not it's not till here I stand and can do no other. Like right. that's the moment, and up until that point, he was still prepared to work through existing processes and structures. Yeah, you know, I mean the Luther of the Ninety-five Theses, the Luther of some of the early disputations. You know, it's it's sharpening, but he is certainly not outside of the church at that point. He was trying to clean. I mean, again, like he calls for a council, right? Mm-hmm. Even as late as the eve of his excommunication, that's his solution. And so, I I think that's an interesting way of thinking. You know, whether it's from a council or a kind of charismatic. Pope or, like, this happens kind of on a smaller level where you do get kind of very devout bishop figures Mm -hmm. or intellectuals like Jimenez in Spain who, like, at their level, they do have the power to undertake a kind of reformation and they they launch, you know, intellectual movements, new universities, uh, or they actually do, like, require higher education standards for their priests or try to reduce the simony, the absenteeism of priests in there. there. So you get that kind of reformation happening. Okay, here's number two that I was thinking about. The opposite of that would be what if none of that happened? In a sense, it didn't really happen. Like, Renaissance popes are not right. Francis figures, right? right? And what ended up happening is you got a couple of attempts at calling councils, and the popes realized they could just ignore them, and they were irrelevant. They could, you know, say whatever they wanted, but the power resided with the hierarchy. So let's imagine that has that still proceeded unchanged. We don't get that kind of reformation. But instead, like, couldn't you have had a reformation from below? Couldn't you have had just... Um, you know, monastic or clerical or lay movements, which, even within a somewhat corrupted church, were still bringing about something like a reformation of the church. You know, I'm I'm struck here. There's a great pietist church historian named Gottfried Arnold in the 1690s who writes a famous history of the church called his Impartial History. And he says that the true history of the church is often found on the margins, and it's often found in dissenters and what are deemed at the time heretical movements. And it's not necessarily found in the center of ecclesiastical power. And there's a way of telling the story in that way. Like, you can find a lot of heretical movements, but think of you know the Waldensians as kind of an interesting, weird case. It's uh, this script that starts in Lyon, France in kind of the late 1100s, is expelled, moves into the Alps and kind of disappears for a few centuries. And then all of a sudden in the fourteen hundreds you start getting a local bishop noticing the existence of Waldensians and interrogating these people. And then eventually, I think it's like fourteen eighty seven calling for a crusade against them and there are mass burnings of these people. And eventually they make their way into the Reformed church and become kind of Presbyterians eventually. Mm-hmm. But like that's a kind of reformation that's taking place in at a local level of people who are making very Protestant-like moves. It's translating the Bible into the vernacular, having something like a priesthood of all believers, um, rethinking the nature of worship, of the sacraments, of education. You know, Is that a kind of Reformation that's bubbling up from the bottom? Uh, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, th- this is not
1: exactly what we're talking about, but that would make me feel like if in 200 years we're all in a Baptist, like that will have yeah. been what happened, right? Like, yeah. Because there's this sense of like they were persecuted by everybody during the time of the Reformation and endured to the point now where it's like, is anybody like? Is, does any Christian group look down on the Anabaptists much? Like they're they're sort of like there's a lot of integrity there to them, and 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 I feel like like I I find I'm amazed by the number of different people who are drawn to, at least philosophically, like the in Anabaptist worldview.
0: Yep. Exactly. Or, I mean, you could, as some Anabaptists would do, say, well, the church was reformed. We're the church. <laughs> right. Well, right, right, right so it's right. not yeah. actually the yeah. church. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a different point of thinking about it. I, I mean, like, other examples of this. We'll talk about Wycliffe in a second. But you do get this underground movement of the Lollards in England where it's very dangerous to have vernacular scripture. But, you know, they're there right up until the time they come out in the English Reformation. Well, and I think about, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of all, like, like if,
1: if I was writing a, a, a novel about this, a counterfactual novel or alternative. Alternative history novel, like you know, I'm, I'm imagining basically the the uh, the the arc of this is that you have these underground um, Christian movements, Christian groups that are reformed groups, and maybe still very very Catholic in, in, in lots of their thinking, but very opposed to the corruption they see in the the Renaissance popes and things like that. And you end up telling this story where. The popes get recast as the Roman emperors who are persecuting true Christians until you get a new Constantine. Fic- yeah. I mean, like, like, like you could you could imagine that story playing out pretty easily, and it and it becomes a propaganda war, which we end up having in the Reformation, anyhow, with the printing yeah. press of saying like like the Pope is the new Caesar and. You know, oh, like, like, yeah, I mean, that that's that show's coming to Netflix in two years. I'm working on it. So, like, <laughs> right. But I mean, like, you could imagine that story.
0: You could. I mean, and, and so you could imagine because this is really happening. I mean, in addition to those, you know, fairly marginalized, persecuted groups, you have other non-persecuted groups like the Brethren of the Common Life, mm-hmm. who educate both Erasmus and at least for a year, Luther. Um, and, and are these lay people who are devoted to a more disciplined kind of life that emphasizes private devotion, simplicity. Um I mean, it's like that that's that's not uncommon at all it's not breaking away from the church. It mm-hmm. does have huge ripple effects because it educates some of the key reformers. Um, the other thing that Luther is very much part of is you 've got this whole movement in the fifteenth century into the sixteenth of monastic orders adopting what 's called observance you know essentially making the decision to intentionally go back to the rule, whether it 's Benedictine or Augustinian or mm-hmm. Dominican whatever it is. So like, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just actually have to take seriously these commitments we've made. And mm-hmm. if, by doing that, then, you know, this will have ripple effects into into education, into service, into evangelism. You know, it's a reason, like, there's this kind of preaching revival that happens in Europe in the 15th century that, you know, these friars then who um, are, are called to preach. I mean, that's partly what's feeding, you know, Luther and Zwingli's popularity. Mm-hmm. And so what you'd have to imagine is, like, could that ever have built to a sort of moment where there's not quite the felt need for a drastic break anymore or like the scenario you just described where what it does is it eventually prompts a kind of persecution and you get a different kind of, you know, figure.
1: I I mean, I think that's the story it would have to be. I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to imagine a a version where it's, where, because like that would be a persecuted group if it became Mm -hmm. too big and too, influential and too powerful and too uncontrollable. Like that that is the story of how these things work. So I I, I'm trying to paint paint the peaceful picture of this transformation, but it's hard.
0: Well it's hard. I mean the Waldensians are such a small group. I mean they're in the mountains for God's sake. I mean they're just they're they're off the radar. But what if like a certain say the Franciscans or Mm -hmm. someone like I mean a fairly you know by these standards, large order that's everywhere in Europe gets to the point where the Pope I mean, does what the Pope does. To the Jesuits, In nineteen, gets rid of them, mm-hmm. right? And instead, they continue to try to live their life, and they, they actually yeah. seek martyrdom, like Protestants will do. What kind of effect does that have on European Christendom?
1: Right, right. I
0: mean, like that—that'd be another kind of story you could tell. So I mean, that's that's number two. And then the what well, th- can I actually oh, sure, no. thing interesting about
1: yeah. that too is like the the other thing happening at this time that the pro that Protestants aren't doing. But when you're branching the Jesuits, and we think of this as like this is also the time when global missions are starting. And what if mm. one of, what if those groups that we're talking about leave yeah. and they say, well, let's go to the new world, uh-huh. and like and they and they take a really create a real
0: foothold there, and that becomes the center of the Reformation. Yes, yeah. It, I mean, Ooh, that's a good story, too. Well, and it actually, I mean, like, I wish I knew more about this, but, like, people who study the Catholic Reformation will talk about that. Mm-hmm. that. In some ways, like, a place like Mexico becomes a place to experiment with new forms of worship, new forms of piety, new kinds of cults of the saints that, in some cases, find their way back into European Christianity, right? So that, that's a really, that's a fascinating idea. Like, Luther never happens but the Jesuits still do, mm-hmm. and the Dominicans and Franciscans still go around the world, and, and that's actually where you see Reformation taking, and the key figure is someone like Las Casas or Xavier instead. Right, right. And, uh, we're writing really good books here. <laughs> we should copyright these ideas before someone takes them. Okay, let's move then to scenario number three. That's this gets a little bit easier, I think, both to imagine and to poke holes into because it, it, it imagines like a Luther before Luther. And so we can almost pick out like people we actually know well. These are not imaginary figures, but let's imagine something has changed, and they actually take on something like the notoriety slash popularity of Luther, and they succeed in becoming the leader of maybe a breakaway kind of Reformation, mm-hmm. if not a more Catholic kind of Reformation. So, like we could back, we could mention Francis, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, that that he actually he has the charisma for it. He yeah he it seems like another of those figures where lots of christians admire like, his yeah, star not, power. Right? I mean like,
1: like and I really do mean that like like he is this big heroic figure. Yeah I mean
0: had he been I mean it's maybe it's impossible for him to have been a more luther like figure where but like let's imagine he got to the point where the papacy actually tries to excommunicate francis like and he stand So I don't, is he the right kind of figure So
1: so think? so to to paint the picture of francis for for people listening I mean it would be the person who is and Luther's definitely not this, is kind of morally beyond reproach. Like, there's, yeah. there's, like, you, you can't, you can't attack him for, cause he wouldn't be the, he's not a, a a bar fighter like Luther is, an ele- <laughs> right? He's, he's,
0: he's irreproachable. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, so what if you had that type of figure who really, who made his stand? Um, and his, so, so that would be a, di- yeah, it would be a di- different kind of stand. That's mm-hmm. really interesting.
0: Well, and it, you know, that kind of figure could also feed into some of the kind of apocalyptic fervor that you... I mean, so, like, Certainly. this isn't necessarily so much in the 13th century, but if a figure like that is born into the 14th century, into the 15th century, like, and seems... I mean, because this is kind of like Savonarola, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he kind of seems like this prophetic figure calling Europe back to repentance. But if you marry that to kind of the mystical charisma of a Francis... Right. And the kind of moral... Oh, perfection, really, right? right. Some yeah. yeah. Be- because,
1: because the thing you have to have with that figure is somebody who also, like, would—because Francis Francis really tries to model his life on Christ, mm-hmm. so you need to also
0: have the part of the person who would refuse the crown. Yeah. I mean, like, like that becomes a big piece. So this is where I was going to go with this. Like, Luther, in a sense, only becomes Luther because he has political allies, right? Right. And could a figure like this— like he be that person if he has political allies. Because he would have to tie himself to people. But who could march, he become yeah. the reformer if he doesn't have those political allies? Sure.
1: So I, this would have to be the the groundswell, and I, and I, and in truth, it would prob what it would have to be. You'd have to have Francis, and then you would have to have the Francis acolyte who is basically as good as Francis, because yeah. you would need the first one to die, you need, yeah, and then you need a martyr. because that one that then that person can't be corrupted because. They're they're gone, mm-hmm. and then you can say, and then you can point to that person as. But then I feel like we're getting into big sort of cult of personality kind yeah, of yeah. things too. So yeah.
0: I mean, almost like now we're talking about messianic figures right. in Christianity, and right. st- I mean, like this is becoming more like a Mormon story mm-hmm. or something, right? And I mean, the other piece is, at what point do we invent the printing press? Yeah, you know? right. because I mean, this is a way of thinking about, it, like, well, why doesn't John Huss? become the reformer, right? I mean, this is someone who anticipates, he's the kind of morning star of the Reformation. He sounds an awful lot like Luther. Luther gets called a kind of huss figure in his own Mm time. I mean, the kind of traditional way of telling it is, well, you know, he's a regional figure. He's got this base of support. But once he's dead, his message stops. And it only continues in the context of one kingdom that achieves some degree of autonomy. Mm -hmm. You know the story. Or Wycliffe, you know, is maybe another version of this, right. about 30, 40 years. Earlier. They're easier to silence. Yeah, and, they're yeah. easier to silence. You know, they, they've got a kind of, you know, a following, but it's limited by language, just by distance, right? Like, do you have to invent the printing press 50, 100 years earlier to make these scenarios play out? Isn't probably, that central to the development of Luther? Um, I'm, also,
1: I'm also thinking, like, a Francis figure, what type of life is he going to call people to who aren't... Going to be Franciscans. Yeah. You know, like, because, because, because you, for this to take hold, he has to, he has to be all the things that he is, but then he also has to offer a way to live in that tradition without, while still being in this world more. Or maybe not. I don't know. Well, and
0: I don't know enough about the, I mean, the thirds, right? Right, I mean, right. Like, I don't know. I mean, how much that develops out of him—that's a later development. So maybe, maybe that becomes a bigger piece. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I don't know. I think the media is a big part of this. And if you're interested, like, read a book like Brand Luther by um, I think it's Andrew Pedigree, which is I mean, it's kind of astounding. Like, even having taught this class, some of the figures of—it's like every three weeks Luther writes something and. Mm Like eighty percent of what he writes is in German. his opponents mm-hmm. mostly write in Latin.
1: well, that's actually an interesting thing too because they they need to be prolific in terms of output mm-hmm. too so and 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 can you be a Francis figure and spend most of your time writing? yeah right yeah, which probably leads us to one of the next people you want to talk about well
0: so I mean I think we both have a sort of soft spot for Erasmus right who uh, I mean is the other great writer of the he's Vietnamese- I mean, he's not really at the scale of Luther because no one's at the scale of Luther by that point. But, I mean, he's a best-selling author who is widely read in a number of genres, you know, is capable of being pious Mm -hmm. and of being satirical, of being a scholar. I mean, he writes for all sorts of different audiences. He's Mm -hmm. a correspondent with everyone in Europe. He does kind of have an international reputation to him. He moves in all sorts of circles. Like... Could Erasmus have been the Luther figure? Like Erasmus lays the egg, right? Mm-hmm. The Luther hatches, and Erasmus says, "You know, that wasn't the kind of egg that I meant." Right, to right. But I mean, is there a scenario where Erasmus actually becomes Luther, or is he just not the right personality for it?
1: Yeah, I think it's a temperament issue. I wonder because, cause, well, in truth, what we would have with with Erasmus is a reformation of the Roman church rather than a reformation of Christianity. Yes. Because because Luke, and my point being that Luther needs to really do his reformation, needs to create, they need to create something new where Erasmus, like that's a deal breaker for him. So, so what the question is, could Erasmus, is there a version of this story where Erasmus makes Luther irrelevant? Where, where, where Luther really does become a fringe figure. Who's like, why is this guy over here yelling, Mm -hmm. Let's listen to the more, uh, slightly more moderate person. Yeah. Because he's, not, he's not necessarily that much more. Uh, well, Luther can go to kind of to extremes with some of his argumentation. Maybe. I, mean, I
0: think the way you'd have to think about it is for some reason, let's imagine we can postpone the fervors of 1517 and the following decade. Mm -hmm. Like it didn't have to somehow, I don't know how we've done this, but it didn't have to reach that kind of fever pitch. What if we could let a kind of Erasmian Reformation gestate for a couple of like generations of intellectuals? Because think about how many Erasmian Christian humanists become Protestants Mm -hmm. because they latch on to Luther. But what if there wasn't that Luther to latch on to? And what if John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and some of the other, like Philip Melanchthon, instead are just in their university settings, you know, they're not breaking away, but they are, you know, over a course of time training up new students who do critical study of the Vulgate using these new translations. Mm -hmm. You are looking for this kind of simplified law of Christ that Erasmus talks about. Like, could that have had the kind of... I mean, it's not really from the top. It's more from kind of the intellectual middle, but... But is
1: that... The question is, is that too far up? Does it lack a common touch? And I don't know these things. The other thing is, like... He's maybe too global and not enough local. Like, right. like there is no, like, this is, a, this is a thing that happens in our class. Students are like, where do I put Erasmus on the map? And it's like, well, it's kind <laughs> of hard. Yeah, because yeah. he, he lives, I mean, he's in Henry VIII's court. He's from Rotterdam. He he moves around. So, like, so where is the local support for Erasmus so other like, than
0: in the universities? Well, uh, here's the scenario you could imagine, because, like, if he has a home at any point, it's actually England. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really drawn to England. His friends, like, more and call it, and like what actually gives birth to the English reformation is let's say that doesn't change mm-hmm. there's no Luther but there still is this problem with the succession sure. of Henry VIII but Erasmus stays in England this whole time um like is he is I mean, is he is removable I mean does he become a figure that would then kind of serve the purposes of Henry That's an interesting he, story. Yeah, does, removed as easily as Thomas More what kind of
1: sway is, like, does he have over um does he have over Henry? I mean if you have more and Erasmus can they Move him in, move him in other directions. Can they be speaking into his ear and saying, "Here's how you can." Do-. Although, what would, a ra- how would Erasmus have felt about?
0: Well, all of the yeah, yeah, yeah it's, and like, I mean, a lot of that is fed by Lutheran currents flowing into sure. through people like Cranmer. I, I just. You know, like you would have had that kind of confrontation with the Pope at some point, anyway. Like,
1: but maybe he's able. Maybe, maybe you, instead of sending Cramer, you send Erasmus to the Pope, and maybe that goes better. Yeah, yeah. Know?
0: Or I mean, maybe, but that becomes you know Henry really becomes Frederick the Wise, and he protects then an English kind of Luther. Sure. That's I don't know. Like England is also far off. In a, I, yeah. I think you're you're actually moving us then to the really key question, which is you know how much is this about Luther and his setting like how much of this is because Luther spoke in a language the Germans understood Mm -hmm. and cared about, and that this was really, in some ways, very particular to the grievances the Germans had towards an Italian pope in the kind of politics of the Holy Roman Empire, and then how much of it is particular to Luther himself as a person at his time. So, I mean, the last thing I'll just say here before we move on is, I, I do want to recommend this book by Carlos Herr. If you have... If you have the patience to go through a pretty dense but really fascinating history, one of the points he makes is that it's just—it's so hard to be a reformer. And he talks about all of these figures, most of whom we've talked about now, but they've got to walk the line. You know, it doesn't take much to move from kind of loyal dissent into heresy that's punished with fire. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, even Erasmus, right at the end, you know, famous <laughs> as he is, more respected as he is, kind of winds up isolated and you know, abandoned by every side in the Reformation and his books prohibited by the church. So I, I think it's it's a fascinating kind of what-if sort of period in history, but like it just it's really hard to be that person. And, you know, people who would have pushed harder found themselves dead, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that leads us then to Luther. Like, mm-hmm. it needed to be that kind of bull in the theological china shop, you know, who was also willing to play politics and who was German. You know, is that... What it needed to be. So let me ask version two of the question. Could the Reformation have started about the same time, but absent Martin Luther? So, um, weren't all the preconditions in place? You know, it wasn't the kind of right place, right time, you've already said. Um, or did it really have to be Luther around 1517 in that place?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it probably. We talked about temperament with, with Erasmus, like like Luther's temperament was probably what was needed. Um, he seems like like a, a like a fairly unique guy in yep. terms of his. You have you have to be somebody who's willing to sort of break things, mm-hmm. um, but also be super pious. Like he actually like that's the thing is like like you, I feel like you can either characterize Luther as he gets mischaracterized in all kinds of ways. But what when I read him and think about him, I think of like when you read actually are reading. Parts of him, like he seems, he's, he's very sincere about what he believes and what he means, and and but at the same time, that I, I try to square that with the Luther that that I see breaking things, and that I see like like eventually embracing the idea that you need you, you kind of need to break this. Yeah, I mean, um, you've
0: got to have this weird combination of impatience. Mm-hmm. right? You can't let this just gestate. But also someone who ultimately his eyes are on eternity, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I mean, actually, it does make sense. Like, there's a big school of thought that suggests that a lot of this is you know, it's apocalypticism. You know, it's urgent because there's a sense the end of time is coming. And um, but you're right. I mean, this is someone who is both earthy and devout at the same time, and mm-hmm. that's one reason he connects so well with his audience at the yeah. time. Yeah, I
1: mean, there's nothing like. I shouldn't say there's. It, 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 it's very easy to feel like there's like there's not. It's not too sort of cynical or crass what he's doing. Like I really think he means this, mm-hmm. but then there's other parts. Which I mean, well, as we continue to explore Luther, we'll, there's other parts that are real problems. Um, but even those things feel like they're coming from a sincere place. They just lead to really bad things.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the hard part here. Use the I forget if you were use the word inevitable, right? you mm-hmm. like historians hate inevitability. I always tell my students when we talk about something called the five C's of thinking historically, we talk about context and change over time, complexity, causality, and then the fifth one that's really hard to explain is called contingency. And there's some sense that history does not have to unfold along a certain path. And it gets hard if you're doing a Christian institution because some student will ask about the sovereignty of God. Right. Right? And, right. But, you know, at least within what we're able to know as historians, like, there's no sense that history has to work out as history worked. And, in fact, that's a kind of bias that's built into the way we look at the past. Mm-hmm. Then everything, well, we know how it works, so it had to build towards that moment. And so, it, I mean, it's very difficult for us to end more ourselves from what actually happened. And it's why doing this kind of exercise is both fun and, and really difficult at the right. same time. Right. And so, like, how do you unmoor yourself from, you know, that German monk posting 95 theses and this unleashes them?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the, the question that I would ask you is, like, how is this story different if it's two years later and it's Ulrich Zwingli?
0: Because he's the closest, right. like, big name, I feel like. Yep. And, and I don't know how big of a name he is, but he's... Well, but he's no smaller... I mean, he's no smaller than Luther is in 1517, right? right? I mean, Luther is a professor of no great renown, right. no great accomplishment at a kind of third-tier new university in a backwater. I mean, like, it's it's one of the electorates of the Holy Roman Empire. Their attention rate was awful, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I mean, like Zwingli, I mean... Zurich is not the sure. you know, centerpiece of power. It's, it's Switzerland, but so how? how I, did, but I think it's it a good question because Zwingli's Reformation is not necessarily contingent on what Luther had started. I mean, it's not totally detached from it, but it's not dependent on it either. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could imagine, so I mean, if you don't know the story, Zwingli is uh, humanist-educated, you know, gifted in languages and scholarship, plays all sorts of musical instruments. He's a really interesting guy. He's a chaplain with these Swiss mercenaries. who are kind of the chief export of the Swiss cantons at this point. He's really devastated by his experience of warfare. And in 1519, is called to be essentially the lead preaching pastor in Zurich, which is, I think, like 10,000 people or so, a German-speaking canton in this very loosely affiliated Switzerland. And his his famous first kind of break with tradition is to start with Matthew chapter one and simply preach a kind of expository series instead of following the regular rotation of pericopes of the church. And by 1522 or 23, like you've got a kind of burgeoning reformation. There's a famous debate during Lent about whether you can eat sausage or not. You know, clerical marriage is on the table, translating the mass into Swiss German is on the table. And then... Um, we're pushing my knowledge here, but there's a disputation the city council arranges, essentially to decide, are we going to follow the Reformation? And Zwingli has this biblical debate with a local Catholic official, and Zwingli has the Bible. He's got Hebrew, he's got Greek, he's got Latin, he's got German, and he kind of moves effortlessly, and he just kind of dazzles everyone with his knowledge, and the city council votes, essentially, we we will follow the word of God, which is a kind of, we will have a Reformation of sorts. Now, by that point, like I'm not sure how much you can separate from what's been going on elsewhere in the mm-hmm. German speaking lands with Luther. So like if you somehow remove all those debates, all the publications Luther has been doing, the Diet of Worms, the the kind of radicalization in Wittenberg, you could you have just a Zwinglian Reformation in Switzerland that is not crushed, that then starts spreading. Is the is the else?
1: political support would the political support have been robust enough for a Zwingli?
0: I don't know enough uh, about Switzerland
1: at the time to know, like, I mean, it's, and, like how, the, how that worked.
0: Maybe. And, like, there are others like this, like Martin Bucer in Strasbourg is happening. Um, you've actually got kind of multiple Swiss and South German reformations. Like, the question is, and, and really, like, it is kind of a counter-tradition to Lutheranism, mm-hmm. too. Like, it's, it, it's, it's its own reformation that fundamentally disagrees with Luther and to this day is separate from it. I, I just don't think like Zwingli, first of all, is not the writer. Of I mean that's right, that's right. the clearest difference you can see is that he is not churning out just an astoundingly prolific writing output that then is you know, reprinted and disseminated all over the world. Which Luther is do you, I mean mm-hmm. I wish I could remember the numbers okay, so, I think because I wanna give you numbers. So you numbers. think you
1: think Luther gives cover to someone like Zwingli? Like like Luther Luther's drawing most of the big fire and that allows someone like
0: um, is that I don't know. Makes sense, is, I don't yeah, know. no, I mean, I think, I mean, I guess it depends what time period we're talking. Like, I I actually, honestly, I don't know a whole lot, like, kind of what it looks like once we're past the Dia de mm-hmm. You know, once it becomes clear there's not going to be a martyrdom, there's not going to be an execution. I mean, there's so much, I think, like, we like to think of an emperor as an incredibly powerful figure. Right. He's a very weak ruler, I mean, in the German-speaking lands, and you've got a lot of local power, and so what you actually really have are lots of local reformations that have kinds of connections. Mm-hmm. But even like Luther, like, uh, it's not like he's not presiding over some burgeoning Lutheran church. Right. right. I mean, he's still just a, he's a professor. He's a pastor. And then he, writes. I mean, like, so it's kind of like, it's his written output, that I think is really distinct though that I keep coming back to. Yeah. So so I mean so in some ways the big precedent
1: that Luther sets is he lives. Yeah. I mean like that's that's the thing. And then so because once Luther lives, then that makes it not in using the word inevitable again, makes it not inevitable that the next person who calls for change automatically gets killed as a heretic because we And that's kinda of what I mean by give give cover too. Like yeah. it's like well, Luther's doing this and that's and that seems he seems to still be doing it. Does that make it easier for the? I mean, it yeah. does. I mean,
0: it's interesting as you mentioned that. I, I mean, I try to think through a list of Protestant reformers. How many of them actually are executed? It's a pretty short list. Like, it's it's Thomas Cranmer. Right. Mm-hmm. It's English reformers in that you know, which I feel is kind of sui generis. The English right, Reformation right, right. is so odd and isolated. I mean, otherwise, I mean, like Zwingli dies, but it's only because you get this kind of civil war between Protestant and Catholic cantons, mm-hmm. and he puts on his uniform again and goes out and he dies at the Battle of right. I think Capel or something. Like, right. he's not executed. you Anabaptist. It's the Anabaptists, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that that's the only case. Like, there are a lot of Protestant martyrs, but it's not it, it's not leaders, because right? Right. they have all carved out kind of this sphere where they've got the protection of a local... And, and, like, even like I mean, the famous story is that Charles V in the middle of the war that finally breaks out a year after Luther is dead. Like, he actually... I, I don't know if this is true or possible, but, like, comes to Luther's graveside. And you're supposed to, at this point, you know, exhume the bones and burn them, like mm-hmm. they did with Wycliffe. And he essentially, I mean, like, the fight has gone out of him. Like, mm-hmm. he retires. He, he doesn't even want to... He just kind of wants to hand it off and be done with the whole thing, and you get peace instead. You mm-hmm. know? And so... It is weird because, like, martyrdom is a real important feature of the Reformation. Uh, a book I recommend is um, called Salvation at Stake by Brad Gregory. He says there's something like 5,000 martyrs, most of them Protestant, a lot of them Anabaptists. But, you know, all these people are both martyrs and killers of martyrs. Right, right. But it doesn't ever decapitate movements. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's what you don't see. And I guess Luther sets a kind of precedent in that way. Um, but it is that also what makes the Baptist so interesting, like their leaders are making a point of trying to provoke that kind of outcome mm-hmm. as a way of bearing witness. I mean, right from 1525 on, and we'll probably come back to that in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and we'll talk about the radical reformation. So, well, this is fun, Sam. This is good. I mean, this, I know this is kind of in our wheelhouse, so right, just do, right, like, right, speculative alternative history, which is not unique. To which is case. funny because neither of us read that stuff. Or like, oh, well, one of you? us does. Okay. I, I used, well. I, it, there was an article in um, I think the LA Review of Books about Civil War alternative history. Mm-hmm. Cause it's been on the news because of I think HBO was going to do like yeah. a Confederacy show, and so the question was asked, like, do we even do this anymore? But um, the the author is an American Studies student, there's this huge genre. Like I remember in high school reading. Harry Turtledoves, Guns of the South was my favorite book for like three years, Hmm. which is this ridiculous scenario of South African white supremacists from the 21st century travel back in time to it's like 1863 and give AK47s to the army of northern virginia and they I, take the white house it's I have
1: great. to I have to so tell good. you Chris once time travel's involved it's not an alternate history anymore it's, it's just science sci-fi fiction. I, know. I know I understand
0: but I, I i i actually do enjoy thinking through scenarios like this hopefully we did not get quite that fancy That's right. in this i don't know what that would be at know. this point like
1: we should well we should have done one alternate where we did bring our favorite 20th 20, 21st century christian Back to lead the
0: Reformation, like John Piper travels back in time right. to Geneva and pals around with Calvin. There you go, and like it just a, buddy really a buddy comedy. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I think that's about all we have to say about that. Thanks for joining us for a little exercise in counterfactual history. Join us next time as Sam and I consider maybe a bit more traditionally historically some of the many paradoxes of Luther's German Reformation. If you like what you heard, and who wouldn't? Like, I I loved what I just heard. You can read more of my musings on Christianity, history, and education at the Pietist Schoolman, and also every Tuesday at the Anxious Bench. My newest book, The Pietist Option, is available from Amazon and other retailers. The Pietist Schoolman podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was produced and engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening.